Kevin's going to read for us our scripture today, and this is Luke's account of uh, Jesus' resurrection. So if you have a Bible, can you turn to Luke chapter 24? If you've got a Bible app, it's Luke 24. I'd love for you to go there with us. And we'll be reading just the first section, just the first 12 verses. And let's go old school. Out of reverence for God's Word, let's stand together. So uh, Luke 24, verses 1 through 12. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, two men suddenly appeared in clothes that gleamed like lightning and stood before them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed like nonsense to them. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. Amen. You may be seated. Christ the Lord is risen. (laughs) We're tired of saying that, Ed. It doesn't matter. We're going to say it a few more times. Welcome to Resurrection Sunday, but let's be honest, we live busy lives in a busy suburban America. We live right outside of one of the most vibrant cities in the world, and we sometimes wonder, because we're so busy, because we're sophisticated, we're pretty well educated, we sometimes wonder what the events that happened on a hill 2,000 years ago have to do with us, and More than that, you know, it's difficult for us to go all in on these events. So I want you to think for a minute this morning, hey, what if Adam and Moses and David and all the prophets of the Old Testament, what if they all point to Jesus? What if they were all evolving hints that God would do Jesus? And honestly, more concern to us, what if this story is the thing toward which everything else points? all of human struggling, all of our want and our angst, what if it all points to this? What if this is where all of it finds its meaning and satisfaction? What if history is really His story? If that's true, then we should know three things. We should know the truth of the resurrection. We should know the context of Jesus' death. The truth of the resurrection and the context of Jesus' death And we really have to know the meaning of the whole story. So let's see if we can get to that this morning. First of all, the truth of the resurrection. We're not going to spend much time here, but I don't know if any of you have HBO. If you have HBO, if this week you got a chance to watch the HBO special on Scientology. But it was as bizarre as you might imagine. One of the Scientology beliefs that I guess you would say exposed, not not really exposed, I mean it is a Scientology belief, most Scientologists don't get to this belief until they're at the upper levels of Scientology, but Scientologists actually believe that 75 million years ago there was an, I'm, I'm reading this by the way, 
there was an intergalactic ruler named Zenu who had a population problem that made China look sparse. So Zenu enlisted the help of evil psychiatrists to drug a large portion of his alien population, freeze them in ice, and then load them onto space planes which they have diagrams of, and they look suspiciously like the common airliner of the 1950s, the DC-8 Comet. The aliens got shipped to Earth where they were dropped in and around volcanoes, at which point Xenu detonated loads of nuclear bombs just to ensure that if the volcanoes didn't do the job, the nuclear bombs would. And then, when they died, the alien souls, which Scientologists call Thetans, soon started drifting upwards, which... Zenu had anticipated, and the wise and mighty Zenu had foreseen this, and cunningly, he built an electric fence that surrounded Earth's atmosphere to make sure they stay put, because we all know that electric fences keep alien thetons in place. The thetons were then brainwashed for a considerable period of time before being set loose, where they roamed about all confused and dazed, not sure who they were, and eventually, they began to latch on to early mankind. And this is now the source of all of our confusion. And all God's people said, exactly, exactly, like, that's crazy. And I watched this and I thought, wow. And the fascinating thing about this documentary is, you know, it was being filmed by and it featured former Scientologists who were saying to themselves, uh, how did we ever really believe it? It's just crazy. But as I watched the program, I thought, that's how people feel about Christianity. Shoot, sometimes that's how I feel about Christianity. So if this is the, the thing toward which everything else points, if this is the thing that all of our angst and all of our longing and all of our pain, if this is the thing that in which it finds its satisfaction and meaning, then the first thing we have to know is the truth of the thing. I had a blog exchange this week. We posted my sermon from uh, last year at Easter in which I really spent the whole time just talking about proofs of the resurrection. And Sandy Eklund and Christina Bonet pointed out to me that someone recently had evidently gone and listened to this and had written a post who evidently he's not a believer, he's struggling. So this is Gary's post. Gary says, Every time I request the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus from a Christian blogger or pastor, the first thing they do is to refer me to some apologist's book. Dear Christian friend, if it takes an entire book to prove that your first century miracle happened, it most probably didn't. Open your eyes, friends. You wouldn't read a Mormon apologist's book to decide whether or not to believe Joseph Smith's supernatural claims. You wouldn't read a Muslim's apologist book to decide whether or not to believe Muhammad's supernatural claims. And you wouldn't read a Hindu apologist book to believe the supernatural claims of the Hindu gods, Gary continues. Nope. You would expect the person making the supernatural claim to give you sufficient evidence within a five-minute conversation. Unless that claim is your claim, then you expect us to read all your apologist book to believe it. Something is fishy here, folks. So I decided to respond. So I posted a response on our blog. Gary, 
I suspect you've been referred to other sources because the chances of anyone being genuinely convinced to change their worldview through a blog exchange are pretty slim. However, having said that, let me offer four quick things for you to think about. Number one, the lives of the disciples themselves suggest that something exceedingly dramatic happened that day. I like Charles Colson's comment about this. Colson was the White House lawyer during Richard Nixon's presidency, and he eventually went to prison for his part in the Watergate scandal. Colson said this, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Colson continues, because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Every one of them was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible, end quote. Secondly, there's not a good explanation for the resurrection idea if you really pursue it, except that it literally happened. Here's what I mean. A, this is not something the Jews themselves were expecting. If they were going to make something up, it's extremely unlikely that they would have made this up. In fact, resurrection is not an Old Testament idea. B, the best alternative explanation is what's called the swoon theory. That is, Jesus did not really die and was later resuscitated by the cool of the tomb. This is what Muslims believe. This has been offered by many critics over the years. But the details of the New Testament accounts chronicle Jesus' death with detail that comport with modern medicine, and they do so in ways that the authors would not have known how to fabricate. For instance, the stab wound would produce a flow of blood and water that we now know would be consistent with a deep wound very near the heart. Plus, what we know about Roman crucifixion amply demonstrates that they were masters in the art of this kind of torture and death. Jesus certainly died. See, maybe the disciples were lying. This seems highly unlikely to me. Possible, but highly unlikely. They had very little to gain and very, very much to lose. But believing this is an option, of course. D, the point here is simply to demonstrate that explaining how the myth of the resurrection could have developed is more difficult than one would imagine. Third, the fallback position for many critics of the historicity of the resurrection is that this was simply myth that grew over time. Not that anyone was lying, but that the story grew much larger over decades. Usually such critics will refer to the ease with which this might have happened in a superstitious ancient Near East context. Perhaps. But I would offer that the ancient world was far less gullible than we imagine, and by the time the documents were written, not nearly enough time had elapsed for the development of myth. In fact, there is one quotation from 1 Corinthians 15 in the Bible that contains what appears to be a creed, kind of like one we read this morning. This letter was written within 30 years of Jesus' death and probably within 25 years. The Apostle Paul claims that of those who actually saw him, quote, most are still living. And if this section is actually a creed, then surely it would have been developed by the believing community even some years before the writing of this letter. By the way, we could go through this same kind of exercise 
from any other passages. Not enough time for myth to have developed. Fourth, the primary reason for doubting the resurrection is that we have not seen it and cannot reproduce it. Therefore, it could not have happened. In fact, it goes against much of what we know about the biology of life itself. Fair enough, Gary, but I would remind you that this reasoning is not unlike religious belief. There are reasonable arguments to be made for the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus. There are reasonable arguments to be made for believing the truth that this event literally happened. In fact, I believe the resurrection is a more reasonable explanation of the facts than any of the alternatives. If that's so, why would we not believe it? Well, I suspect the answer is because we're too sophisticated. This seems silly sometimes. Or maybe it's not a matter of disbelieving it so much as it's a matter of it doesn't really connect our lives. So to answer this concern, we have to look at the context of Jesus' death. So We've got to know the truth of the resurrection, but we also have to know the context of Jesus' death. Now, to cue this up, the, the context issue, I want you to see this video. This is a three-minute video. It's a beautiful animated survey that kind of sets up the context of Jesus' death and will set up the comments that we make next. Check this out, this video. The entire story of the Bible builds toward and sets the stage for the event we celebrate today. This is especially true of the Old Testament sacrificial system. So let's take a moment there. The Old Testament sacrificial system was an elaborate audiovisual aid designed to remind God's people that sin is costly. The Old Testament sacrificial system was an elaborate audiovisual aid designed to remind God's people that sin is costly. Look, we know sin is costly from experience. When we really mess up in our everyday relationships, there's a cost. Feelings are hurt, all kinds of awkwardness and difficulty and work is created in our relationships. Plus, we do damage to our own sense of right and wrong and to our own self-image. God established the Old Testament sacrificial system to remind us of this. It was His mandated way of illustrating His universal law of right and wrong and His cosmic justice system. So, Here's what God's cosmic justice system looks like. And let's lay this out in a couple of points. God's justice system looks like this. First of all, there is a universal law of right and wrong. It's built into the fabric of the universe as inextricably and as every bit as real as the law of gravity. No, no, no matter where you go in the universe, masses are attracted to one another. So if I drop this book, this book will appear to you and I as if it falls to the ground and hits the stage because the mass of the earth is gigantic. The mass of this book is small. But what's actually happening is that these two masses are being drawn toward one another so that the, the, the book will hit the earth. Anywhere you go in the universe, the law of gravity is in effect. And I am convinced that there is a universal law of right and wrong that is built into the fabric of the universe. You see it in all cultures. Oh, I know a lot of ink has been spilled talking about the differences in cultures, and that's absolutely true. Cultures are very different. But what's shocking is how similar they are. In fact, you will not find a culture anywhere that rewards cowardice or applauds people for abandoning their families. We all have this innate sense of right and wrong. This universal law of right and wrong includes the notion 
that you and I are meaningfully connected to God. It's what we were designed for. We were made, we were built, we were designed to have a love relationship with God. From before eternity, He called us to have a love relationship with Him. Second point, we are all sinners seeking to find our meaning and pleasure apart from God. And by sin, we're going to define sin as all those things that we think and do and say in which we're trying to find our meaning and our purpose and our pleasure apart from a connection to God. And we are all sinners seeking to find our meaning and pleasure apart from God. Let's look at a couple of passages of Scripture here that suggest that. Go to the next slide, William, if you would. The Apostle Paul makes this argument. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. John wants to make sure we get it. Look, if you claim to be without sin, you're kidding yourself. The truth isn't in you. Isaiah offers up an extremely scary thought. Your iniquities have separated you from your God. He goes on, he says, your sin has, he's hidden his face. He will not hear you. We are disconnected. Our sin separates us according to Isaiah, and all of us have sinned according to Paul. We've all sought our meaning and our purpose and our pleasure apart from Him. According to Jesus Himself, our goodness and our rightness with God should be greater than the most religious and most observant people of His day. In fact, He said we should be perfect just as God in heaven is perfect. So think for a moment about that standard. The scary thing is that the universal law of right and wrong mandates that when the law is broken, consequences must follow. When the law is broken, consequences must follow. Just like the law of gravity dictates that bodies will be attracted to one another, the law of right and wrong dictates that violators will die. Paul put it like this. He said, the wages of sin, you know, you you deal in sin, and what you receive as your wages is death. Now, some will ask, wait, okay, the God I worship The God I believe in, we always have to be careful about a phrase like that, don't we? Because God is what He is. We don't get to make Him up. We don't get to create Him in our image. The God I worship is loving. Perfectly loving. He forgives me like my grandfather. Let's remember that God's character is no less complex than ours. And not only is God perfectly loving, He is perfectly just. Because He is perfectly just, and acts perfectly and consistently in concert with his universal law of right and wrong, he always does. So, our third major point, God is perfectly just. And therefore, acts perfectly and consistently in concert with his universal law of right and wrong. This is why Paul tells us that the wages of sin is death. This is also why Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 6, and listen to this. In Ephesians chapter 5, he's given this litany of stuff that you and I do all the time to kind of mess up our relationships with one another, to violate our own consciences, in essence, to violate God's universal law of right and wrong. He's gone through this litany, and then he says this, don't let anyone kid you. Don't let anyone deceive you with empty words. For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. That's where we stand in the direct line of God's anger and His justice, His perfect justice. 
So the sacrificial system was an elaborate audiovisual aid designed to remind people that sin is costly. I'm setting up the context. Remember, first we talked about believing in the truth of the, the, the event itself. And now we're, we're setting up the context. And we're talking in particular, this video reminded us that the, the whole context of, of God's story is really pointing to this one event. That it's all a hint pointing that the thing God was going to do was Jesus. The Old Testament system in particular highlights the meaning and significance of that event, not only for that day, but for us today. Let me do one more thing to illustrate this, and then we'll talk specifically about the meaning for us. A number of years ago, those of you who've been part of Gateway for a while, you'll remember this, but a number of years ago, we spent uh, all summer, one summer, preaching through the book of Leviticus. Now, the book of... Oh my goodness. Let me explain why that is, but the the book of Leviticus threatens at almost every point to be incredibly boring. (laughs) I'm just saying. Not every part of the Bible is scintillating. And the book of Leviticus is one of those places in particular that's not very scintillating. And we were going to spend the summer in the book of Leviticus, so I tried to come up with as many gimmicks as I could to excite us about this. So I said, hey, all summer long, every time I say the book of Leviticus, I want you to say, exactly, so that's what we did. Although, don't do it today, anyway. So we were working our way through the book of Leviticus, and all of it was pointing to uh, the middle of the book of Leviticus, where in the book of Leviticus, Moses has lined out what the people are supposed to do on the Day of Atonement. Now, all through the sacrificial system, there are these little sacrifices that are offered for dedication to God, or vows that we make to God, but there are also regular sacrifices offered up for the forgiveness of sin. But those all really pointed to the high and holy day that they called the Day of Atonement. And the Day of Atonement was the biggie. So what I said all summer long during that summer at Gateway, I said, hey, hey, if you miss every Sunday of the year, don't miss August, whatever it was, because we're going to go over the Day of Atonement. We had that day set up and it was awesome. Those of you who are here were part of us then, you'll remember the worship time that we had because we were going to visibly illustrate the Day of Atonement. So we actually had a local farmer bring in a lamb for us. Because on the Day of Atonement, they take a lamb and sacrifice that lamb. They shed blood as an audiovisual aid that sin is costly. And it was built into the fabric of God's people that once a year, they would all gather and they would sacrifice as near perfect a lamb as they could find. To demonstrate that sin is costly. We had a farmer, as I said, bringing a lamb. We brought the lamb up front. We tied a cord around its neck like they did in the Old Testament on the Day of Atonement. The lamb pooped on our stage. Yes. Which was an awesome act of worship. We had a man who was part of our congregation at the time, a guy named Mike Brotherton. We called him High Priest Brother Tonis. And we ordered online the whole garb for the Old Testament priests. I mean, their thing that they wear, I mean, it's all it's a very elaborate. There's jewelry everywhere that represents things that God has done and 12 tribes, and it's, it's hot and elaborate. And Mike is wearing this elaborate thing. And so we had the stage set up visually in kind of three sections, which represented the sections of the tabernacle. Because what they did on the Day of Atonement is the high priest would go in, this one day of the year, would go in deep into the tabernacle, in the very center of the tabernacle, where they had the most holy stuff. They call this place the Holy of Holies, and they believe 
The very presence of the presence of God was there. That They were so afraid of this day that they would tie a rope around the ankle of the high priest when he went into the Holy of Holies in case he died there. Nobody else wanted to go into the presence of the presence of God. And so if he died, they would drag him out. And once a year, he would go in making the sacrifice of as near perfect a lamb as they could find. He would go into the Holy of Holies and he would present that as an offering to God saying, God, we recognize that sin is costly. It has cost us and it's cost our relationship with you. It's cost our connection to ourself and it's cost our relationships to one another. And as a sign of that and as a sign of what you have to do to forgive us, we're sacrificing this lamb. And then he would take that into the Holy of Holies. And he would present and make prayers and he would come out and the people would celebrate. We did that on a Sunday morning at Gateway. Here's what we did. We said, you know what's happened? <laughs> they used to have to do that every year. Every year they would do the Day of Atonement. That was on top of sometimes daily, weekly, or monthly sacrifices for sin. They would do it because of a lamb killing a lamb. It's a great reminder, but it doesn't really satisfy God's justice. It doesn't satisfy the consequences of you and I having broken repeatedly the universal law of right and wrong. It doesn't satisfy it, so they had to do it every year. But what the New Testament tells us is that, are you kidding me? God found a perfect lamb without stain or blemish. And God the Father sacrificed that perfect lamb so that we might go free. It's as if Jesus took our fall so that we could float. He took on our penalty. So what we did that day at Gateway a number of years ago, we explained that. We kind of got excited. And I said, here's what I want to do. Worship team, come on up. Don't come up, Jordan. But I said, worship team, come on up. What we're going to do today is we're going to demonstrate what Jesus did. So instead of when priest Brother Thomas makes it into the Holy of Holies, instead of doing some prayers and some stuff and then coming back out, the yay people, he's going to do what Jesus did. And he's going to sit down in the very presence of God constantly making intercession for us. And here's what I want you to do, Gateway. When Mike walks across the stage, he's going to sit down. We had a chair in the place that we designated as the Holy of Holies. When he sits down, I want you to go nuts. I want you to embarrass the Pentecostals. I want the police to be called. So then I sat down. And Mike, <laughs> Mike was awesome. Ceremonially, he walks across the stage very slowly. <laughs> but this was Mike's shining moment. Mike gets across, and then he, I, he's making stuff up now. He does some things over here in the Holy Ghost. And then he sits down. And Gateway went nuts. Do you remember? I was pretty proud. Gateway went nuts. Gateway, community church, a bunch of staid suburban northern Virginians formed a conga line around the, the same. My mother-in-law was visiting that week. My, I, I looked up and my mother-in-law was doing... <laughs> so, now we're ready to understand the meaning of Jesus' death and resurrection. Listen, 
one of the central criticisms of Christianity over the centuries has always been meaning. The criticism goes something like this. Hey, what is the death of a well-meaning rabbi on a hill outside of ancient Jerusalem centuries ago? What does that have to do with me? I mean, the courage with which he died might be admirable, but why should I celebrate it as if somehow it changes things in my life? And the first answer to that criticism, of course, is found in the context. We are violators of God's universal law of right and wrong. We have sought our meaning and our pleasure apart from God. We have not lived in a vital connection with Him, drawing our purpose from a love relationship with Him. Our actions have separated us from God and therefore from life and from meaning and from hope. And because of that, we spend our lives looking for alternative hope in sex or money or possessions or children or accomplishments. And we spend our lives looking for alternative meaning and progress or in comfort or in accolades or in entertainment. And those things seem to work for us for a while. But ultimately they fail us and we are left empty and shipwrecked. Whether we know it or not, whether we recognize it or not, our souls long to be in a love relationship with God, but our violation of God's universal law of right and wrong has made such a connection impossible. We're bound up in the consequences of our actions. We will die eternally separated from God as surely as if I drop this book, it falls. This is where the death of Jesus comes in. What if God could find a solution? What if God could satisfy His justice but also offer relationship to the objects of His love? What if God could answer the consequences of our actions? What if He could satisfy the demands for death therefore satisfying the demands of perfect justice and perfect love? The answer is, of course, He did it Himself. If He took the consequences on Himself and therefore freed Himself to offer love without encumbrance, then He could. Romans chapter 3, you've got to hear this. This is kind of the heart of the Apostle Paul's argument when he's laying out this same thing. We'll wrap up with this. Romans chapter 3. I'm going to begin reading at the back end of verse 22. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. So righteousness there means like being rightly connected to Him. You got it. You're in a groove with God. So this groove with God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And he's talking to a particular audience here. And what he's saying there is, you know those people out there, they're a mess, but all of you have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption, the bringing back that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Him, Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement. Remember the Day of Atonement? through faith in His blood. He did this to demonstrate His justice because in His forbearance, He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished because a lamb wouldn't do. He did it to demonstrate His justice at the present time for us so as to be both just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Christ Jesus having died and having accomplished the full release of God's love toward us, then the resurrection finishes God's victory. All enemies have been overwhelmed, our sin, our distance, and finally death itself has been overcome. What if Adam and Moses and David and all the prophets of the Old Testament and the entire Old Testament sacrificial system, what if they all point to Jesus? 
What if they were all evolving hints that God would do Jesus? And a more concern to us, what if the Jesus story is the thing toward which everything else points? All of our struggling, all of our want, our longing, our angst, what if it all points to this? What if this is where all of it finds its meaning and satisfaction? What if history is really His story? If that's true, that would be utterly fantastic. We're at the end of a series of messages, conversations we've been having here on Sunday morning. We've tried to find the weirdest stories about Jesus that we could find and essentially pointed to that and said, holy smokes, that's fantastic. Of course, this one tops them all. If that's true, then the death and resurrection of Jesus is the most important event in our lives, not just in human history. If that's true, then all of our efforts to find meaning and purpose and pleasure apart from Him will be ultimately fruitless. But if that's true, then we can find what we're looking for. If that's true, there's hope. Real hope. In the toughest times. If that's true, then you and I must fall down and worship. We must say, good grief, you've got to be kidding me. Jordan, come on up. Worship team. Let's end with a song today. Today I'm not going to ask you to embarrass the Pentecostals. We don't have room for a conga line, and my mother-in-law has passed away. She is in a permanent conga line. But I want you to open up your hearts. I want you to open up your chests, and we're going to sing one more song as if to say, Yes! He's risen indeed! I heard a worship leader the other day say there are really three prayers. Help, thanks, and wow. Stand with me if you would. So, I want you to put your hand over your heart. I want you to find your own way silently. I want you to say help. Because you need help. I know many of you, you need help. But there are also ways that you need help that I don't know. So let's just say help. Help, let's pray, help. Now your life is loaded with benefits. Ask the other 99.76% of human history. And they will gladly tell you how comfortable your life is and how much God has blessed you. So let's say thanks. Thanks for our families. Thanks for provision. Thanks for new babies. Thanks for old children who are stinky and messy, but they're terrific. Thanks for Jesus. Now don't worry. We're done. We're going to sing a song and go. But right now for the next couple of minutes, I want you to say, wow. So in this worship time right now, let's say, wow. God reigns forever.